We'll continue to go. We're going all the way through verse 10 throughout the rest of June and into July. Just as we are in this What is the Gospel series, it's a fantastic passage for us to meditate on the truths of the gospel as well for us to have scripture uh, to be able to convey when we share the gospel, which reminds me, quick plug next week, Doran's going to lead us in an evangelism training after church. I know it's Father's Day. I know it's Father's Day. I know it's Father's Day. Uh, but when we looked at the calendar leading up to Summer Blast and other dates, it was just really the only Sunday we could do. And so if you can't make it, that's okay. We'll have another opportunity eventually. But plan your Father's Day stuff before service. Do a lunch or something. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but Father's Day is just not as important as Mother's Day. I, I, it's just not. It's just not, you know, like, you got to do a big deal, big dinner for Mother's Day. Fathers, we, maybe you need to, but I don't need to, whatever. So uh, come to evangelism training. It's a great opportunity for us to take the truths of what we're learning, but as well, to, to be able to speak them and share them with others, but it's also good rep- preparation for Summer Blast. So that's next Sunday after church, um, uh, following service around 545, we will begin that. I want to turn to Acts uh, chapter 15. All we're doing today is talking about the Lord's Supper. We take the Lord's Supper the second Sunday of every month together, and a lot of times it's following the end of a sermon, and so we cover it in short. And what I want to do today is I felt like it would be beneficial for us to talk about it in a little more detail of why it is what it is, what are some of these traditions, especially with kids in the room, I think it's a good opportunity for us to go, hey, why do our parents do this? Like, why do they eat this little cracker that has no flavor whatsoever? Is it any good? Like, why would you want this? Where's the cookies? Like, you know, and then what, they take this little juice that just makes you even thirstier. Like, it's not even really enough. Like, like, why do we do this? And so I thought with kids in the room today, it'd be helpful for us to explain in more, a little more detail. And then for us to really understand at least one major aspect of the elements in reference to the blood and why it is significant. Uh, so significant. And what I want to do is I want to look at Acts chapter 15. And part of what Acts chapter 15 is going to do for us is going to raise a theological question that is confusing to our culture today. In the first century reading it, they would, it would have made sense. It made sense. The fact that there wasn't a lot of explanation after uh, this statement in the text we're about to read says that they understood, but when I read it, and you and I read it today, we go, this doesn't make a lot of sense. So I want to give context. So let's begin reading in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, Paul has been out preaching. He's after his first missionary journey. He's been out preaching to Gentiles. And the question is raised, what does it mean for a Gentile to come into the faith? Because remember, this is a Jewish faith up to this point. Jesus was a Jew, all his disciples were a Jew. It's a continuation of the Old Testament Judaism, and it's a fulfillment of the Old Testament Judaism in the person of Jesus. But part of Jesus' mission, even in the Old Testament, but definitely carried out into the New Testament, is that his mission was not just for Israel, but it was for all of mankind. So how do you begin to work that out? And as the gospel begins to go beyond uh, Israel, beyond Judaism, into the rest of mankind, the question gets raised, now what do we do? Because up to this point, it's only been a Jewish thing. Now it's Jews and Gentile. What does it mean for Jews to come into the faith? And the question is raised, do they have to obey all the rules and laws of the Old Testament? Specifically, do they have to have the mark of the covenant, which is circumcision? And all that entails in order to be a Christian. 
That's the question that is being raised. Acts chapter 15, Paul was going to say, no, salvation is through faith alone and Christ alone by the grace of God alone. Like that's going to be his argument, which is what we've been arguing and what we believe. But that hasn't been decided yet in church history. So Acts 15 is the great debate. We're having a members meeting today. Um, I'm not going to throw this particular member under the bus, but there's a member who uh, is not here and is sad about it because members meetings sometimes can get interesting as people debate things, right? Uh, they're always very kind, but there are debates that happen. Well, imagine this is the first like major members meeting with a great debate over an important theological topic. And this is the setting of Acts chapter 15. But some men, verse 1, came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So if you're not circumcised, you cannot be saved. That's the argument they're giving. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria and describing the detailed conversion of the Gentiles and were brought and it brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declare all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the laws of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after, the, and after there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth of the Gentiles they should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to test by placing a yoke on the neck? Pause for a second. Let me summarize just to make sure if we didn't get it. Peter's standing up and going, hey, look, Jesus is saving the Gentiles in a beautiful way. We're not going to add any other religious laws. But how does he describe that? A yoke on their neck. I believe it was the first or second song, maybe the first song. We were singing, and the language of yoke was put there. Talking about the yoke of Christ, it brings context to Matthew chapter 11. All who are heavy, laden, and burdened, come to me, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What is he referring to? He's talking about the burden and the yoke of being a Christian. And here, Paul, or excuse me, Peter's using that language to talk about what it means to be in Christ. And what does it mean to have salvation? And Jesus and Peter are both saying that the yoke, the burden of what it means to follow Christ is not a heavy burden of religiosity that I got to do certain things to be saved, but it's a light burden. We understand because of Jesus has done the work for us. As if to say the Christian life is not one of great uh, expectations and burdens. Although there is an expectation to be obedient to him. But salvation is not a burden. Salvation is a free gift given by God. This is Peter's argument. Now therefore, why are you putting God to test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of our Lord Jesus, that just as they will. So basically, we're all saved through Jesus. Okay? Great. Wonderful. I'm, great that th I'm grateful this debate turned out this way. Because that would lay the groundwork for all of Paul's writing in the New Testament. But that's not our dilemma. That's the context. Here's our dilemma. 
Look down to verse 22. So they just stated that salvation is in Jesus through faith alone. Okay, great, wonderful. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barabbas, and Silas, leading, uh, leading men among the brothers. With the following letter, this is like the first, like, um, for example, at times church comes together, even our church, on a matter, and we write a little decision on that matter, a theological decision, whether it be what is our view on marriage or what is our view on leadership. We write a decision, and then we make it public to the church. We're going to do that today when we present new bylaws. Well, this is what they're doing. They're taking, here, we had, a, we had a members meeting. Here's our conclusion. Now share this conclusion with the rest of the churches. And here's the conclusion. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings to you. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden than these requirements. This is where it gets confusing for me initially reading it, and this will launch us into our, the rest of the sermon. Verse 29. Here are the requirements that they give them. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. Now, the fact that he's given these commands is no big deal. He gives these commands in other places. The problem that's confusing that we've got to do some work to, to, to explain is he's giving those commands in the context of making a decision that you are saved by Jesus and his grace alone. But don't do these couple of things. Well, hold on. That's Jesus plus something, right? We just had this whole debate on am I saved by believing in Jesus and being circumcised and doing these, all, all these other things, or am I saved by Jesus alone? And they made a decision. You are saved by Jesus alone. Okay, great. They write a letter saying you're saved by Jesus alone and don't drink blood and don't have sexual morality. Okay, but now that seems like you're adding things to it. And here's what I'm going to simply argue, is they're not adding things to it, and we need to understand what they mean by these things to understand that they're not adding things to it. And this, I hope, by doing so, will give us a better understanding of the importance of the Lord's Supper. One of the, the things that helps us to understand, to begin to understand, why would they say you're saved by grace alone, faith alone, and Jesus alone? Wonderful, but don't drink blood that's been sacrificed to idols. Don't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. Don't, don't do that. Because they would see that as a foundational contradiction to your belief in Jesus. So if you do these things, you are no longer believing in Jesus. These are signs, if you will, and evidence that you're not a believer of Jesus. So by doing them, you don't realize the significance of your, the contrary. It's saying a completely different faith than the faith you profess in Jesus. And here's what it helps to understand. You've got a lot of sacrifices in the Old Testament. 
the sacrifices have a number of dimensions to them. One of which is that we have sin and that sin needs to be atoned for. So something has to pay the penalty for sin. And the Old Testament sacrificial system is just over and over and over and over again showing the need for sins to be forgiven and, the, and more sin, so more sacrifices, more sin, more sacrifices. So the idea that sin needs to be covered is one. Another dimension to sacrifice in the Old Testament is the importance of blood within the sacrifice. In ancient Near Eastern culture, which was the Old Testament, as well as when we get into the Greco-Roman times of the New Testament, the belief was philosophically that the blood was the core and source of life within something that is living. Think about it. It's really not that off today. Now, I'm sure the medical people in here could probably give a little more nuanced answer. But if you don't have blood, you don't have life. The heart is one of the most important organs. What does it do? It pumps the blood. The blood is so important to who we are. So imagine you're in a culture 2,000 years ago or before that doesn't understand the human body and how it works like it does today. All you understand is if someone's hurt, blood's coming out, and that's a bad thing. Blood empties, you're dead. Blood is a, a key to who you are. One of the biggest problems in the Old Testament is this sacrificing to false gods. And one of them, Baal and Asherah, those are two gods that oftentimes that Israel found themselves worshiping, but one of which, Baal, there was an emphasis on sacrifice and even human sacrifice to the point that you would what? You would drink the blood of the sacrifice, believing that in the sacrifice of that animal and drinking the blood, now this is, this is weird. Kids in here should all go, this is weird. Adults in here, all in here should go, this is weird. But this is, this is what they would do. And they would drink it believing that by drinking it, they were receiving the blessing of the sacrifice and the life source of the animal that was sacrificed. Okay? This is one of the reasons why Jesus, excuse me, back up. This is one of the reasons why God in the Old Testament would say that when you sacrifice something, it has to be completely cooked, well done. Now, I'm grateful that we are in the New Testament and we got a different understanding of a blood because I like a medium rare steak. But in the Old Testament, you don't do medium rare. Like, like, like this is well done. All the flavor cooked out of it. Why? Because they believed part of the life source was in the blood. And that, you, that God wanting to even contradict and even show them that their view on that was a little bit off and even the importance of the blood, all the blood belonged to God in that sacrifice you, the life was not in the animal, so you don't eat and drink of the blood. It had to be completely cooked. One of even Samuel's sons, they, he had two sons who were priests, and they did uh, sinful things. Aaron had the same. Aaron had sons that were killed. We talked about that a couple years ago, part of which their sins were they didn't eat, I mean, they didn't cook the meat fully. As if to say, there's an important picture of the element of blood within what you are sacrificing and what it means to you. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, we see Paul tell them not to eat of food that has been sacrificed to idols. The same thing that's been commanded here in Acts 15. Why? Because when you sacrifice something to something, it's an act of worship to that thing. And when you eat of it... You are what? You're eating 
the blessings of that God that you're sacrificing to and the life source of the thing in which you're sacrificing, believing it will give you life. And essentially, eating of a sacrifice was an act of worship to that which you are sacrificing. So when Peter and the disciples tell them salvations in Jesus and Jesus alone, and therefore do not eat of sacrifices and do not drink the blood, what he's essentially saying is that you, by doing so, you're believing and worshiping another god which is contrary, completely antithetical and idolatrous to the, to the worship of Jesus. As if to say, if you do those things, you're not truly believing in Jesus. That you are, because you are, it was very common, to, you would make sacrifices to multiple gods. Well, I'm not really sure which one's better, so let me just sacrifice to all of them. And Jesus and Peter is making it clear that we as Christians, our faith is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Therefore, by sacrificing to other gods, you're actually contradicting your belief in Jesus. So don't do it. It's not that by the abstaining from sacrificing to other gods or eating or drinking to other gods would save you. No, salvation is still in Christ alone. But it's a core witness to who we are as Christians that we take of the Lord's Supper to say we worship one God and one God only. Because remember, they would take the Lord's Supper every week. So it's, imagine you're Gentiles who you've grown up worshiping other gods. Then you become a Christian. And you are told, hey, you are going to eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Jesus. All right, I've been doing that with these other gods my whole life. And so you do that because you believe in Jesus. But you continue in your customs of continuing to eat and drink of other animals and other gods also. Well, hold on. No, no, no. You, you can't worship Jesus and the rest of these other gods. Well, we understand this truth. That when we come to Christ, our allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. Jesus would say similar things when he says, hey, you cannot worship God and money. You cannot have two masters, me and this world. Our allegiance is in Christ and Christ alone. But in this culture, the significance of that allegiance was wrapped up in the blood. So imagine if you are coming from a culture and a belief system that says that all of the life source in the worship of a God is in the blood. Imagine that's your context. And imagine that's the significance. And you come to the Lord's Supper. And you come to even that Passover meal with Jesus. And he makes the statement that this bread represents my body that is broken for you. Eat it. And then Jesus says, this cup represents my blood that is shed for you. Drink it. Or even before that, Jesus feeds the 5,000. People think, man, this guy's cool. He just fed 5,000 out of a, you know, a few loaves and fish. They're like, man, this guy's awesome. And then he says this statement. You cannot be a disciple of mine if you don't what? Eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Well, obviously, we now understand he was referring to the Lord's Supper and what it represented. But the significance of that is to say, your entire life source is wrapped up in me. Your entire life source is wrapped up in my flesh and my blood. Now, we understand that Jesus 
does not literally ask us to eat of his flesh and drink his blood. We can't do that. And the disciples didn't think he was saying that because they didn't attempt to do that. And in fact, many kind of thought he did mean that, though, and they walked away because they thought that was weird. It is weird. But that's not what Jesus meant. What he was saying, though, is, my blood on the cross shed for you is your life source. My body broken and bruised and beaten on the cross is your life source. Therefore, every time you eat and drink of the cracker, of the bread, and of the wine, of the juice, you do this in remembrance of me, remembering that as you do so, metaphorically and symbolically, you're saying, my life source is the sacrifice of Jesus. Not the sacrifice of some other animal to some other God that then requires me to drink of the blood to receive that blessing of sacrifice. But instead, it's of Jesus who laid down his life and his blood was poured out. And when I drink of this, I'm saying I'm receiving the blessing that came from that sacrifice, which is the person of Jesus received by faith alone. This is why when in the disciples say, you're saved by grace alone, but do not eat and drink of the blood of other sacrifices, is because that is a complete contradiction to the belief and the statement that my life is in Jesus and Jesus alone. You cannot say that my life is in Jesus and Jesus alone and then go and drink of blood from another sacrifice. Because what you're saying is your life is also in that, that thing. It's the sanctity of union with Christ, which is why he brings sexual immorality in as well. That's why Paul would say that against all other sins, you're sinning just against others. But in sexual immorality, you're sinning against yourself and against God because it's a picture of the union and intimacy we have in Christ. So when we're sexually immoral or when we eat of other sacrifices and drink of other blood, we are contradicting our allegiance and our belief and our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. As if to say... That for us, when we drink of the juice in just a moment and we eat of the cracker, we are metaphorically and symbolically saying, Jesus is my life source. He's my everything. He, he is where I get my hope. He is where I get my life. He is everything. It's kind of weird for us to think about drinking of blood. But when we understand that this was not just a random thing, but all throughout the Old Testament, not just in Israel, but in all ancient Near Eastern culture, no matter what the God was, no matter how they did it, there was still a belief that it was in the sacrifice and the, and the drinking of the blood is where you found life. And so Jesus says, actually, that is true, though, but it's in me. It's not in some other God and some other sacrifice, but it is through the blood of Jesus and the breaking of his body on the cross, that you and I have life. So we eat and we drink in remembrance that our life is in Jesus and nothing else. So what I want us to do is, and we'll read 1 Corinthians 11, and I want us to take the Lord's Supper together. But church family, I want you to see the significance that when you drink, when you eat the cracker and you drink of the juice, you are making a statement and a statement reminding yourself that Jesus is your life. That Jesus and Jesus alone is where you find salvation. Salvation is not in works, not in religious actions, not in good deeds towards others. Your salvation is in the fact that there was one who was perfect and his name was Jesus. And he went to the cross and he said, I will 
shed my blood and I will allow my body to be destroyed so that everyone else in this world that I love can have life through my blood. And so we, our salvation is in Jesus and Jesus alone. So here's what we'll do is I'll pray a blessing over the cracker. We'll read a passage of scripture, then we'll eat. Then I'll pray a blessing over the juice. I'll read a passage of scripture, then we'll drink. But church family, let me be clear. Drinking this juice does not save you. But it's symbolic and metaphorical of the blood that does save you, Jesus Christ, when you put your faith and trust in him. Please understand the symbolism versus the reality. The symbolism is this. The reality is in when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Even though you're dead in your trespasses, because of his great love for you, because of his mercy, he made you alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you and we lift up. We lift up just even this cracker, just a symbolic piece of cracker representing the fact that it is through your body and because your body was broken that we can be put back together, that we can be restored, that we can have forgiveness of sins and new life in you. And so as we eat of this cracker, would you remind us of that our life source is in you, Jesus. And then we put our faith and trust in you and we'd walk with you on a daily basis. So Spirit of God, would you renew us and fill us and sanctify us back into your image. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, take and eat. Amen. Jesus, we come to you and we lift up this cup of juice. We pray blessings over it. It's just a symbolic reminder to us that our life is in your blood. The fact that you poured out your blood for us means that we can have life. So as we drink this, we're reminded that Isaiah tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And praise be to God that you, Jesus, shed your blood for us so that our sins could be forgiven. And we drink this as a reminder, as a celebration, as a testimony that our sins have been forgiven, not because of our deeds and our good efforts, but because of your grace and mercy when you laid down your life for us. And so we thank you, Jesus, for that grace. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, take and drink. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.